Well, if you would take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're continuing through this great passage here, talking about a godly wife and the role that God has for a godly wife. And I'll begin this morning by reading our passage for us, beginning in verse 1. Follow along as I read for us verse 1 through verse 6. Peter tells us this, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Or in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. In the Encyclopedia Britannica, it defines feminism as this. Feminism is the belief in social, economic, and political equality of the sexes. Although largely originating in the West, feminism is manifested worldwide and is represented by various institutions committed to activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. Notice that word equality in the definition there of feminism. This is what people say feminism is. All that women want is equality. However, listen to one ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, Ada Spencer. She says this. It's even hard to say that. But here's what she says. She says this, quote, God created the woman to be in front of or visible to Adam, which would symbolize equality if not superiority in all respects. Even more, one can argue that the female is the helper who rules over the one she helps. End quote. What is she arguing for? Not for equality. She is saying there, she's arguing from Genesis chapter 2, and she's arguing that Eve is the one who is ruling over Adam. And that's what many in the feminist movement are arguing for. They don't want equality amongst men and women. They want female superiority. They want a complete reversal of the roles. That's what they're after. But that's not how God designed man and woman. God did not design Eve to be Adam's superior. And at the same time, just to be clear, God did not design Eve to be Adam's slave either. Yes, they are spiritually equal, but God has designed different roles for them. And as we talked about last week, the the role of the man is to lead and the role of the woman is to submit. Those are the roles that God has given to man and woman. And as we looked at 1 Corinthians 11.3, we saw that this is the role in society, in the church, and in the family. The role of the man is to lead and the role of the woman is to submit in society, in the church, and in the family. That's how God has designed it. 
God has designed a marriage to be between one man and one woman where the man willingly leads by providing for, protecting, caring, and loving his wife. And the woman willingly submits to her husband. That's God's perfect design. But today, and and throughout most of the history of mankind, there is tension in this design, right? There's a tension that is there. You have feminists, the feminist movement, those that are involved in that movement that go against this design, and you even have men who are chauvinists and want to dominate and control women. Why is it like this? Why isn't it easy for men to lovingly lead and women to willingly submit? Well, we have the answer in Scripture. Turn over to Genesis chapter 3 with me. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we we read about... The fall in which Eve was deceived by the serpent, she took of the fruit and ate it, and she gave to her husband who was with her. He was there with her. And Adam and Eve, they sinned against God and they fell. And as John MacArthur said, the fall resulted not simply from disobedience to God's command, but from violating God's appointed rules for the sexes. That's what happened here. That's what happened in the fall. They violated God's appointed rules that he gave to the man and to the woman. Notice what then happens in Genesis 3.16, after the fall. To the woman, he said, God said this, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is where the battle of the sexes began. Right here, Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning. Notice what Moses writes there for us. He says, yet your desire to the woman, he's saying this, your desire will be for your husband. And by desire here, it, it does not mean sexual or psychological desire. But that word desire there has the idea of controlling or ruling over. In fact, it's the exact same word that is used over in Genesis 4-7. Where God tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Sin's desire was for Cain. That is, sin wants to master or control Cain. That's what God is telling Cain. He's he's warning him. Saying sin wants to control you. You're a slave of, of sin. And what took place at the fall and was a part of the curse was that the woman would want to control her husband. She wants to rule over him, to control him. And the man would want to dominate his wife. Which is not how Adam was created to lead his wife. Not in a dominant role, but in a loving role. Role. He was to love his wife, cherish his wife, care for his wife. One commentator says, The curse on Eve was that woman's desire would henceforth be to usurp man's headship. 
Yet he would resist that desire and subdue it through brutish means. It's the battle of the sexes. You have the distortion of the woman's submissiveness and the man's authority. Distorted. And what do you end up with? Conflict in marriage. That's what you get. You get conflict in marriage. So how does a couple overcome this conflict? Answer, by the grace of God. By God's grace. By walking in the Spirit. By walking according to what God has commanded us to do in His Word. That's how we overcome it. By being obedient to what Scripture commands for both the man and for the woman. That the man is to love his wife as Christ loves the church and the woman is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5. And that's what Peter is telling us in 1 Peter 3. Turn back to 1 Peter 3 and let's continue to work our way through this passage here. Now, as a reminder from last week, we're going to break these six verses down into three simple points. And we began looking at the first point in what we call the duty of a godly wife. This here is the duty of a godly wife. Wife, Notice again what Peter says in verse 1 there. He says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Peter's been talking about submission here, going all the way back to chapter 2 and verse 18. And he continues here, this topic of submission, now here in verse 1, where he says, in the same way. In the same way, just as I've been talking about this, these submissive relationships where the citizens submit to the kings and the slaves submit to their masters, he's saying in the same way here, I'm continuing this topic here of submission, that wives you are to submit to your husbands. And he tells this to the wives. Who are these women? Who are these women? Well, if we go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, these are the believing wives, and they're a part of the chosen people that Peter is writing to. These are wives who have been born again. They've been chosen by God. They're children of God, and they're, they're a part of the body of Christ. And the command which they are given is to be submissive to their own husbands. And as I said last week, this is a willing and voluntary submission that a woman willingly submits to her husband. This is something that every wife is to voluntarily do with her husband. She's called to submit. Now, just as a footnote, let me just comment on this quickly or maybe not so quickly. Because I hear a lot about mutual submission between a husband and a wife. Mutual submission. And people will say that a husband needs to submit to his wife. But let me just say this. Nowhere in Scripture is this ever commanded. Nowhere. A husband is never commanded to submit to his wife. In fact, Tom Schreiner says, the New Testament nowhere counsels husbands to submit to their wives. You say, well, what about Ephesians 5.21 where Paul says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, being subject to one another there does not mean that husbands are to submit to their wives. How do we know? Because Paul goes on in the next three verses to say that wives are to be subject to their own husbands. He would be contradicting himself 
If he was to say there's mutual submission between a husband and a wife and that husbands are to submit to their wives, and now let me tell you, wives, you're to submit to your husband, he's contradicting himself, right? Paul then goes on to say that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Christ being the bridegroom and the church being the bride. Let me ask you, is Christ ever called to submit to the church? Never. Never. He's the head. He's the authority. He's the one in which we submit to. And so husbands are not to submit to their wives. Now, before you start sending me emails this week... Let me just quickly tell you what it does mean in Ephesians 5.21. What does this mean? And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This idea of submission in Ephesians 5.21 means that there ought to be submission to one another in the context in which submission is commanded. Or another way that we could say this is that all of us are to be subject in the areas in which we are commanded to submit. So saying that a husband is never commanded to submit to his wife does not mean that he has ultimate and final authority. First of all, he's a man who's under the authority of Christ, right? Is he a man who submits? Oh, you bet. He be better. He's commanded to submit to Christ. Second, he's a man who is under the authority of the government, as we saw back in 1 Peter chapter 2. He doesn't just get to go around and do whatever he wants. He's a man who's under submission. And he's under submission to the government. And he's a man who is also under the authority of of a boss, if he's not his own boss. He must submit, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He's a man who is under submission to his own boss. So men are still under authority. But they're not under the authority of their wives. That is never commanded in Scripture. Never. Never. They are under submission only in the areas in which they are commanded to submit. And in Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, Paul goes on to tell us the relationships where there is to be submission. He says, wives, children, and slaves are those who submit, and husbands, fathers, and slaves, or or, uh, masters, are those who do not submit. He goes on and he gives context in which there is to be submission. One commentator says it this way, Let there be subordination among you, that is, let each of you subordinate himself or herself to the one he or she should be subordinate to. That's what Paul means there in Ephesians 5.21. Be subject to one another in the context in which you are to submit. That is, you are to be submissive in the areas in which God has called you to submit. We could even say it this way to the men. You are to lead in the areas then in which God has commanded you to lead. Which means husbands and the family and elders in the church. Those are men who are called to lead in the area in which God has called them to lead. That's their duty. That is their responsibility. That is their role. God has given different people different roles and responsibilities. And whatever area you you land in, then you are to obey God's commands for you in that area. That's why it's important to know what a man is and what a woman is. And it's easy to know, 
right? Man and woman, where do you fall? If you're the man, you're to lead. If you're the woman, you're to submit. That's what God commands. That is God's order. That is God's perfect design that he has ordained. And listen, God has ordained submission. The Christian life, as I've said, is a life of submission, right? Both for men and for women. But you just have to know the context in which you were called to submit. And so God has ordained submission, which means he's also ordained leadership. Because in order for submission to happen, you have to have somebody who is leading. It's not rocket science. Pretty simple. Submission, leadership. Now, to say that husbands are not to submit to their wives does not mean that they get to boss their wives around either. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not giving license here for men to be domineering or ruthless or chauvinistic. So please don't think that that is what I'm saying here. That's not what I'm saying at all. What is a husband to do? He's to love his wife. He's to provide for his wife. He's to protect his wife. He's to sacrifice for his wife. He's to live with his wife in an understanding way. He's to honor his wife. He's to be his wife's spiritual leader. He's to show grace and mercy to his wife. That is what a husband is commanded to do. That's God's God-given role to him. What about the wife? Well, the wife is commanded to submit to her husband and to respect her husband. That is her God-given role. And as we're going to see, this is not only for wives with believing husbands, but this is also for wives with unbelieving husbands as well. All wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Why? Well, Peter gives us what we call a purpose statement or a purpose clause here in 1 Peter 3.1. Notice he's specifically talking to wives with unbelieving husbands. And he tells these wives, you are to submit to your husbands. Why? There's a purpose in that. Notice what he says there. 1 Peter 3.1. In the second half, well, let's just begin at the, at the beginning. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, here's the purpose statement. So that, you see those two words there? So that, that's a purpose statement. There's a purpose to that. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Peter now gives us a specific scenario. A specific scenario. You see, a believing wife may have thought that now that she has value and dignity and worth in Christ, that she doesn't have to submit to her unbelieving husband. In a sense, she could think, well, my head, my authority now is Christ. And I'll submit to him, but I'm not submitting to my unbelieving husband. He's an unbeliever. As if somehow she becomes spiritual now and says, I am going to submit only to Christ. Well, if you submit to Christ, you should do what? Submit to your husband. Because that's what Christ commands. But she could think somehow, because my husband is an unbeliever, I don't submit to him, I only submit to Christ. But Peter corrects this wrong thinking here, and he tells these wives, even with unbelieving husbands, that they are to submit to their own husbands. And again, Peter's talking to all wives here when he's talking about submission. How do we know that this is all wives that Peter is talking about? Well, because of the words. Notice these two words there, even if. Even if. As one commentator says, the words even if could possibly indicate that the majority of the husbands were actually believers. So he's saying, wives in the church, you are to submit to your husbands 
But I know that there might be a minority in there, in the church, that do have unbelieving husbands. And he's saying, even if you are one of them, this is your duty and responsibility. This is what God has commanded you to do. So what Peter is saying here is that all wives with believing husbands are to submit. And even if you're a wife with an unbelieving husband, you're called to submit. And why single out the wife with the unbelieving husband? Well, because her submission serves an evangelistic function. He wants her to understand this. He wants her to understand how greatly her submission can be used in the life of her unbelieving husband. One of the ways that a believing wife could evangelize her unbelieving husband was through her submission to him. Now, just to be clear, this situation here was not the result of a believing wife marrying an unbelieving husband. That's not what's taking place here. That's not what Peter is talking about. The Bible is very clear that this is not acceptable. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So he's not saying here that you have a believing wife who goes and marries an unbelieving husband. That's not what he's saying here. Because if somebody does that, that is called sin. It's a sin for a believing spouse to marry an unbeliever. That's why the church is to be involved in marriage. To encourage, love, come alongside those that are getting married. Or to stop someone. If we see a brother or sister who's ready to marry an unbeliever, it's our duty, our responsibility as a church to say, no, you cannot do that and we will not support it. Why? Because God says you're not to marry an unbeliever. So what's going on here? Why is Peter writing to wives who have unbelieving husbands? Well, these women, these wives and husbands, they were married when they were pagans. They were both unbelievers. When they got married. But the wife heard the gospel. She repented of her sin. She trusted in Christ. And she gets saved. Now you have a believing wife with an unbelieving husband. That's the context. And what happens to their husbands? Their husbands are still disobedient to the gospel call. In fact, notice Peter says there in verse 1, he identifies these unbelieving husbands as those who are disobedient to the word. They are disobedient to the word. What does he mean by that? He simply means that they are unbelievers because they are disobedient to the gospel call. Remember that the gospel call is not a suggestion. The gospel call is what? A command. It's not a suggestion. We don't go and suggest that people, oh, you know, you want to feel better about yourself? Eh, repent of your sin, believe in Jesus. Ah, you want to have eternal life? Ah, maybe, here's a good idea. I would suggest to you that you should. No, we command them because the Bible commands that. What must you do? Let me tell you what you must do. You must repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone to be saved. Do that. Do it now. If you're here this morning and you haven't done that, I urge you, I command you, do it now. The scripture commands you, do it now. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone who went to a cross and died on your behalf. To make the payment for your sin that you couldn't make. Because your sin had separated you from a holy and righteous God. But Christ came and he made the payment for you. A payment that you couldn't make. And he went to a cross and he bore your sins on that cross. And he made that payment. And he died 
on that cross. He suffered and he bled and he was buried and he rose again. He conquered sin and death and he calls for you and he says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. Come unto me and I'll give you eternal life. If you're here this morning and you haven't done that, I urge you to do that now. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. These these unbelieving husbands that Peter's talking about here in our passage, they haven't done that. They've heard the gospel call. That's why they're disobedient to the word. They've heard the command to repent of their sin and believe in Christ, but they say, no, I'm not going to do it. They're rejectors of the gospel. Now, notice what Peter says then here for these wives who were in this situation. Notice he says there, badger these husbands and harass them and nag them with the gospel over and over again. Is that what he says? It's not what he says. What does he say? Notice, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. You see, Peter knew that these women who were living with unbelieving husbands would have a difficult time in their marriage. He knew that. He knew the difficulties and the hardships that these believing wives are going through. He knew that some of them were liable to being oppressed by their husbands, just as some of the slaves would have been oppressed by their own masters. But Peter also knew the power of their behavior and the influence that that could have in winning their husbands to Christ. Now, just to be clear, Peter's not saying here, as the popular saying goes, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. It's not at all what Peter's saying here. He knows that a person is only born again through the hearing of the gospel message. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 23, he says this, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. How are you and I born again? Through the preaching of the gospel. We had to hear the, the message of the gospel. So he's not saying here that these husbands could be one without hearing the gospel message. That's not at all what Peter is saying. Salvation comes through hearing, hearing the living and enduring word of God. What is that? It's the gospel message. A person cannot be saved apart from hearing the gospel call. It's Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. So these unbelieving husbands, they must hear the gospel preached. But he tells these wives who obviously have already preached the gospel to their husbands, their husbands have already heard the gospel and they continue to be disobedient to the word, he says, now win them without a word. Winning them without a word does not mean that you don't share the gospel with your unbelieving husband. So to to win them over... Without a word means, what does it mean here? It means a wife's quietness after she has shared the gospel with him. She has shared the gospel. He continues to reject it. I don't want to hear it. Yes, honey. Yes, dear. I'm going to continue to pray for you. And what is her job? Now to live in submission to her husband and live in such a way that he might look and see her life and go, there is something there though that she has. Something that's different. I I want that. And he's being convicted by that because she's living in a Christ-like manner. Winning him without a word 
is winning him with her godly behavior. She can win her husband to Christ by the testimony now of her life. She has already shared the testimony of the word, of the gospel with him. And he's refused that. Now her job is to live that testimony out in her life so that by her godly behavior, he might be one to Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, a man's life, or a woman's in this case, is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. He's right. They're watching. Unbelievers are watching. Peter knows that in this case. Unbelieving husbands, they're watching you, believing wives. If a wife claims to be a believer but does not submit to her husband and lives in rebellion against her head, the one in whom God has placed over her, that ungodly behavior will drive that unbelieving husband further away. And she won't be acting as a good witness for Christ if she continues to live in unsubmissiveness to her unbelieving husband. Peter says here that her godly behavior is what God might use to win her unbelieving husband to Christ. Now, notice also that Peter says there in verse 1 that they may be one. You see, Peter is not saying that this is a promise, he's not giving a promise. It may be that a believing wife has to live with an unbelieving husband for the rest of her life. What is her responsibility? What is her duty? Continue to submit to him. That's her responsibility. Peter's not saying here that this is a promise. Peter says that it it may happen. It may happen. And I think that this is something that we need to understand. We need to grasp this point here. Why? Because you see, if a wife is commanded by God to submit to her husband, and she does this simply to win him over to Christ, only to win him over to Christ, and not because that's what Christ commands her to do, then when he gets won over to Christ, what is her temptation going to be? To be unsubmissive. Well, I want him. Now I can go and be an unsubmissive wife. No, 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 no. That's not why you submit. It's not just to win him over to Christ. You submit because that's what Christ commands you to do. You submit out of love for Christ. And when you live in that way and it leads him to Christ and he comes to know Christ, well, guess what? You're going to continue to submit because you know that's what Christ commands me to do. And I love him even more than I love my husband. It comes down to the motivation. Why is she doing this? Why is she submitting to her husband? She doesn't do it just to win him to Christ. That's her prayer. That's her desire. But she does it because that's what Christ commands her to do. Out of love for Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.22, we talked about it last week, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why are wives to be submissive to their husbands? Ultimately, because they want to honor Christ. That ought to be their ultimate motivation for submission. 
You say, yes, Christ, I know that you've commanded me to submit to my husband, and I will willingly do it because I love you, and I know that you have the best plan for me. That's why I'm doing this. Because I love you. That needs to be her motivation. And Peter says here, it is that behavior that might win him to Christ. Now, notice in verse 2. Verse 2, Peter elaborates on this behavior of the godly wife. Notice what he says there, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Notice Peter says that the unbelieving husband is observing his godly wife, right? As they observe, they're watching. Essentially, he's saying here, the talking is over, but this godly wife can still win him over by the Christ-like behavior in his wife. This unbelieving husband is watching how she conducts herself. And instead of winning him through his ear, she can win him through his eyes. Because he's watching. He's watching. And what is it that should capture his attention? Notice Peter says there, her chaste and respectful behavior. That first word there, chaste, is is the Greek word hagnos, and it means pure or holy. Her pure and holy behavior. It describes here moral purity, and not just sexually, but in her whole life, that she's living a pure and holy life that God calls for her to live. In fact, Paul uses the same word referring to how older women are to teach the younger women in Titus 2.5. He says there that they are to teach the younger women, the older women are to teach the younger women to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Which means how are women to live? What are they to do? They're to be sensible. They're to be pure. Living holy Christ-like lives. Being workers at home. Being kind. Being subject, submissive to their own husbands. Why? So that they don't dishonor the word of God. They're to live pure, holy, chaste lives. And then the next word that Peter uses there... To elaborate on the wife's behavior is that it is to be respectful. Respectful. Now, this word in the Greek is actually the word uh, phobos, which means fear or reverent. It's where we get our English word phobia from. To have a, a fear or a reverence for something. What does Peter mean by this? Is, he, is, he, is Peter saying here that she is to have fear or reverence toward her unbelieving husband? Nope. It's not what he's saying here. So what is he saying here? This has to do with her attitude towards God. That she does it because she fears God. That she's living with pure, holy behavior that's honoring to Christ because of her fear of Him. She ultimately respects, fears, has reverence for Christ. And so therefore she will say, yes, Master, I will do whatever it is that you command me to do. Christ, you tell me to do this, I will do it because I fear you above all else. It's fear and reverence for God. And so her, her behavior toward her husband is to be Christ-like. And she submits to his leadership as she seeks to honor the Lord in her marriage. And it's by this behavior that a believing wife 
might win over an unbelieving husband and win him to Christ. Why? Because he's watching her. He's watching what she does, and it is her pure and holy life in which fears the Lord that he is to see, that he's to observe. And listen, the same thing goes for women that are married to believing husbands. This is how she is to live her life as well. In a way that fears the Lord. Living in a Christ-like manner. Desiring purity. Growing in holiness in her life. So that her behavior would reflect that of Christ. She's to fear God above all else. Isn't that what we read this morning in Proverbs 31.30? But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Do you want to be praised? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Honor Him. Live a Christ-like life as a wife. And watch and see how your husband begins to praise you. And ultimately, that praise will come from who? From God. Because he will honor that woman who lives in that way. This is both for women who are married to believing husbands as well as unbelieving husbands. Now, Peter's just told us in about a specific scenario of a believing wife who's married to an unbelieving husband. And in closing here, I want to read to you this story that, that George Mueller once told. George Mueller once told a story of a, a wealthy German whose wife was a devout believer. This man was a heavy drinker spending late nights at the tavern. She would send the servants to bed, and stay up until he returned from the tavern. And she would receive him kindly, never scolding him and never complaining. At times, she would even have to undress him and put him to bed. One night in the tavern, he was hanging out with his buddies, and he said this, I bet if we go to my house, my wife will be sitting up waiting for me. She'll come to the door, give us a royal welcome, and even make supper for us if I ask her. They were skeptical at first, but they decided to go along and see. Sure enough, she came to the door, received all of them courteously and willingly agreed to make supper for them without the slightest trace of resentment. After serving them, she went off to her room. And as soon as she had left, one of the men began to condemn the husband. By saying, what kind of man are you to treat such a good woman so miserably? The accuser got up without finishing his supper and left the house. Another did the same and another till they had all departed without eating the meal. Within a half hour, the husband became deeply convicted of his wickedness and especially of his heartless treatment of his wife. He went to his wife's room and he asked her to pray for him. And he repented of his sin and surrendered his life to Christ. And from that time on, he became a devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man who was one 
without a word. And that's Peter's point in 1 Peter 3. Women, this is how you are to live your life. In a submissive, God-fearing manner in which would bring glory and honor to Him. That's the duty of a godly wife. There's two more points to go, but we'll look at those next week. Let's pray. Father, We're amazed at your word. We're amazed at the truths that you reveal to us and how there is even testimony of how these truths work in the the lives of others. And how you, God, use your word and our obedience to your word to draw sinners to Yourself. Father, I pray that You would help the women of our church to take these truths that we have learned and to live them out in their lives out of fear and reverence for You. And Father, I pray that you would help the men to be leaders, the kind of leaders that you have called us to be, that we would be loving, caring, protecting, honoring, considering others more important than ourselves. And Father, that all that we would do would bring glory and honor to your name. Father, we know that these truths that we have learned here this morning are antithetical to everything that is being said in this world today. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe the truth and to be focused on the truth and to take the lies of the world and to never listen to those to keep our eyes and our ears and our hearts focused and fixed upon the truth. We thank you for these great truths that you've given to us. And we know that you've given them to us because you love us and you care for us. We thank you for your love for us. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.